0: I check my bill at the end of the month. So it cost me about three times as much in Toronto.
1: Yeah, I know for some reason there's loads of people I know in the tech industry who live in Toronto. I think it's kind yeah. Of what a you.
0: Somebody once had it thought they'd have a little complaint at me, and they were kind of like, "Oh, it's all right. Lucky for you, like being uh, able to like uh, be afford the uh, expensive holidays in Greece." Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, it cost me a fraction of what it would be to live back home. I went on holiday to Greece and then didn't go back because I thought it was too expensive to go home. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was much cheaper just to stay here.
1: Well, there's a story that guy you knew, he went to see his grandmother for a weekend, and then he ended up staying there mm-hmm. for a year because of COVID.
0: <laughs> uh, today, you get a bit trapped. Yeah, that's kind of happened to me a little bit a couple of times. I was... Uh, I kind of got a bit stuck because of the pandemic.
1: Well, uh, Vanessa, saying this looks, this colour looks good to me. Well, this is imperial purple, so I'm going. Is that to- right?
0: That's uh, you're going all regal. I've gone all yeah.
1: Marcus. This is purple, Donald. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's good. You need to get like a memento. You need to get like a, a Socrates T-shirt or something, maybe. What colour would Socrates represent? Red. Annoying. Annoyance.
0: Yeah, no, I think he normally, yeah, maybe, but I think he usually wore like uh, just kind of like white or grey or whatever. I think it's grey. You know, like the philosophers traditionally wore grey robes. It was cheap. Or it wasn't good. dyed or bleached. Like it was the cheapest type of material.
1: Dumbledore, basically.
0: Like Dumbledore, it like Dumbledore, but like a younger Dumbledore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like, I wouldn't mind going around like I You look with a quite a beard, you know, like a long beard, white, long beard.
0: I'm getting there, buddy. Like, you know, I was cursed with a uh, slightly ginger beard, like, which is gone, which went white before the rest of my hair. I should probably shave it off, because, like, uh, like, my beard, I was looking at my beard all day. It's gone completely white now, the ginger bits in it.
1: Well, you can be a full philosopher now. You can't yeah. really be a philosopher unless you've got white beard. Yeah, I guess so. That's the rules. People are joining in. Anyone got questions for Donald by any chance? If you have got questions, just throw them in now. Anything That's going to be it. A, Probably just,
0: not. Do you know the thing about Epictetus? Like the under Domitian, the, the Roman emperor, he didn't like philosophers, and he said, "You guys all pack it in with this philosophy nonsense, right? Otherwise, you can all beat it and go into exile. See how you like. Uh, see how you like them onions," said Domitian. Um, he goes, if you want to stay in Rome, you're going to have to stop doing philosophy. That means you're going to have to wear proper clothes. You're going to have to shave your beards off, right? And Epictetus says to his students, right? So he might just be bragging about this, right? But he says uh, when the officials came uh, and they told him that, he said, listen, buddy, if you want to cut off my beard, you're going to have to cut my head off first. Like, It sounds like real tough guy talk.
1: Probably, he's ex-slave, so he probably uh, would have rather die, wouldn't
0: he? He's
1: not against what Epictetus is all about.
0: Well, yeah, people say that. They say, surely, he should be indifferent to his beard. But he would say, it's what it symbolises. He's like, I'm not really bothered, I think he would have said, I'm not really bothered about my beard, but it'd be the equivalent of shaking hands with a dictator, Like you know, these politicians, like oh, I don't know if I should shake hands with Colonel Gaddafi or whoever. Like you know, you get kind of cutting them as a photograph that haunts them for years later. Um, But I think it's like, well, if I shave my beard off, and I go, okay, boss, you know, do whatever you say to this guy that's a a tyrant and a dictator, it's just kind of like symbolizing I'm giving in to his regime. I think it's more about like what it signified in terms of like giving, like allowing somebody to threaten him and stuff like that. But uh, I don't know, would you do that,
1: Scott? Like,
0: you know, if you're an evil dictator, like, would you shake their hand? No, God, no. What if they were really polite about it? It would be embarrassing in a social situation, right? If you had to go, no, sorry,
1: no. I'm, I'm, I'm like, Kate. I'm not, it's Cato, the one that sacrificed himself.
0: Yeah, you've f- fallen your sword. That's me. Rather than shake Julius Caesar's hand. Same. Like,
1: well. I have actually thought of it, reading all these books about philosophy and back in the day when they would end end their lives in the Japanese as well as a new Netflix thing on the samurais. Oh yeah. if it came to it, that is, that boggles my mind how you you know people have got it to go through with it. It's a big thing. I mean, wow. I, just, well, like, I can't from... even punch myself. Like I try and punch yourself. <laughs> like it's quite hard.
0: That's I mean, like trying to bite your tongue on purpose. It's like that's quite hard to do. It. Like yeah. do it by accident all the time yeah exactly
1: so yeah the human mind is 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 crazy but then again it's like you probably know more this when people are like depressed and stuff their biology is different isn't it like isn't Mm -hmm. the mind completely different so it's hard to a lot of people are like ah stop being depressed (laughs) yeah classmate that's Snap out of it
0: yeah Yeah. that doesn't really tend to help much with depressed people i unfortunately right
1: there's a lot of um there's a lot of in the uk now you're about that Stay right Everett, the girl who got kidnapped by the police officer. And
0: then... I, I, actually, I don't really follow the news that much at the moment. So I, I did see it on Twitter and stuff. I don't know all the details. Like, I just kind like, sort of like got the general gist of it.
1: Well, yeah, like, interesting. Like, obviously, there's a lot of problems that's come up, like, like awareness of the problems of, like, there's a one guy that put it beautifully. He's like, put a man in a room full of women, and it's a dream for him. Mm-hmm. Put a woman in a room full of men, and it's a nightmare for him. It's like, when you think of it that way, is actually true so there's this more awareness thing going on now with protests but back in the day right so the like what was the relationship between women and men over history that you know of
0: well women (laughs) generally speaking like throughout most of history got a pretty raw deal like I mean in ancient I think in the time of Socrates women were almost like slaves Like they, we we don't know entirely for sure, but it seems that they weren't really allowed to leave the house very much. I'll tell you what, uh, and a classicist here told me that uh, Greek theatrical masks, they had these wooden masks that were painted and the male masks were painted brown and the female masks were painted white because in their mind, uh, looking at uh, the stage from a distance, women, they thought generally looked pretty pasty because they weren't allowed out the house. And men spent most of their time outdoors, like doing sports and hanging out in the Agora and stuff like that. So it was real. Like, that was how big the divide was. Like, they thought, yeah, like women are white and men are brown. Like, they're in completely, you know, uh, separate uh, spheres.
1: How did, like, I know, like, there's... Like Cleopatra, for example, how did she manage to then climb the ranks to then, if that was the male thing, like how did she turn the tide of that? Because if it was so bad. If I remember
0: say? rightly, she assassinated her brother or something like that. I'm not an expert. Like, like, uh, I, 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 I would Google it. I'm pretty sure she had somebody assassinated. Um, I think I, she read a lot of books. so She was like, oh, this is an interesting recipe for poison. <laughs> uh, is the, their uh, conception of her was it? it? the Romans were freaked out by her this is why I, I think she was actually quite interesting and really cool um, because uh, the Romans were terrified of her and she kind of really in a sense it was par- partly partly kind of her fault that the Roman Republic fell and uh, became the Empire um, because once Julius Caesar got involved with her like the Romans really thought he's going to try and make himself into a pharaoh. Like, uh, not only do we not want a king, like, but the pharaohs are like a step beyond that. And Cleopatra was a pharaoh. She was the last pharaoh, basically, um, because they're, they're uh, gods. They're worshipped as gods while they're still alive. Like, so Julius Caesar like, has a, a kid with her, and the Romans are like, oh man, no, 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 no. We don't want any of this. Like, it completely went against their values. Um, so, uh, and Caesar, you know, every ruler always found that kind of attractive. All the Roman generals and and senators and stuff always thought, yeah, but if we, because they knew, they go, they would go. But when we go on holiday, like to the Easter, whatever, people kind of like. Treat us like we're divine beings or something like they're all prostrating themselves. Stuff. Go back to Rome. Why nobody gives two hoots about it? Like you know, like can we not make it a bit more like that here? Like and you know, I quite like it when people bow and scrape and all that kind of stuff. And I get to wear all my purple robes, little crown and all that. Like I kind of like it. You know. So they they kind of it was when they went on holiday to the edges of the empire, particularly the east. They got they got these ideas like above their station mm. about maybe it's not so bad being a god king Why like, i could i could handle that
1: you know yeah it does sound appealing especially if you if it's in within grasp like we just gotta do this one thing and then we're gods
0: yeah um, like you know and that's why sometimes they quite like to hang out in the east like marcus Aurelius' his brother um i don't think he really wanted to come back from uh, Syria, <laughs> on the he place. was in, they sent him to Syria, I was like, of quite like it, here. You know, they almost like, you know, they treat me almost like I'm a pharaoh or something here. Right, like, so he loved, loved it. And then he had to go back to Rome and people are like, oh, he's just some idiot.
1: Like, yeah. Well, on the topic of like, uh, I know you've got on women coming up, which everybody, I'll send the link out again. But um, before you get into your slides, what is, in your professional experience, what's the difference that you see between men and women when they come to you like and then maybe the stoicism angle have you seen the the same strategies work or not in general
0: yeah um well i wouldn't like to generalize um but uh women uh i mean women and men are diagnosed as having uh problems at a different uh frequency right uh like uh, depression for example is more common among women um social anxiety is the one that gets men and so i actually it's it's about equal if i remember rightly between men and women whereas depression and a number of other anxiety disorders tend to be more commonly diagnosed among women panic attacks uh, are also a lot more common think uh, twice as common if I remember rightly among women um, and that might just be the way that we diagnose things. You know, the cliche, like, so I'm, like I don't want to stereotype too much by saying this, but I'm just trying to simplify um, kind of the tra- the traditional received wisdom in psychiatry put very coarsely, well, not very coarsely, but very simplistically, was that uh, women go to see doctors and therapists and men go to prison because the rates of incarceration are much higher among men so psychiatrists would say is it possible like that men express their mental health problems through crime and drug and alcohol addiction more frequently uh and women are more likely to than men to seek uh professional help for mental health problems so there does seem to be these kind of demographic differences and maybe that's changing a bit over time
1: that's interesting
0: um stoicism uh, about a third. So sometimes what, what I don't like hearing is people go, there aren't any women that are into stoicism. And like about a third of the people that are into stoicism are, are, are women. Uh, and uh, so it's a significant minority. It's not zero. Like mm-hmm. um, It's lower than 50%, but it's still, it's a third of the people that are into stoicism are, are women. And also, it's not really getting anything to do with Stoicism per se. It's more reflects our gender bias in philosophy in general. And so, for example, this is true of philosophy courses at university, but there's groups for Aristotelianism and Epicureanism uh, communities, and they also only have about 30% women in them. So I think this is more of a general thing rather than a, a feature of stoicism per se yeah. but also I feel like there's things about stoicism that maybe particularly in a, in a sense kind of have a, a special attraction to certain groups of women um or at least that's what people tell me uh so that I know um that some women have told me that they they kind of don't really like the more new agey or more touchy-feely kind of self-help stuff. So they they want some kind of psychotherapeutic self-help type of literature that they can use, but they'd rather have something that's a bit grittier and more down to earth. Um and so that the stoicism appeals to them for that reason. Mm. Um but uh yeah like ironically the stoics were the main school, of ancient philosophy, that thought men and women uh, should both be philosophers. Uh, the other schools of philosophy didn't accept women into their lectures, or most of them didn't.
1: Crazy, eh? No? It's mad. And I know, I, I know, you're not a fan of uh, Jordan Peterson because I've seen some tweets. But he, he goes on about, he loves this argument. He loves putting himself in the middle and be like, yeah, whatever, he says these things. He keeps bringing up, I don't know if you've come across it, he keeps bringing up this study. I don't know how they did this study about like in Sweden, they didn't put any like gender um, pressure on males and females and ended up the, the women did more feminine roles like nursing and mm. men ended up doing more manly roles. It's like, how can you even not condition someone in this country, where it's not like you know full on control, like how has he come? Like, is that even true? Like,
0: first. I don't know. Like, I mean, the funny thing about Jordan Peterson is he's um, Canadian, and well, I he, yeah, he's <laughs> fighting. <laughs> <laughs> that was crap. Like, I don't have a, I don't have anything against Jordan Peterson as a person. I just find it really there's a couple of really very strange things about his kind of influence or popularity or whatever you want to call it. Um, I, he's a clinical psychologist, he's a professor of clinical psychology. I would never have guessed that his book was written by a clinical psychologist, let alone someone who's a professor in that field. I mean, that that's how far removed it is from what I would have expected him to be saying. He doesn't mention CBT once. Um, and, and like, I don't really get the impression that he knows much about CBT or he doesn't give any indication of being It's very strange to me. I'd never heard of him like, until he got into the debate about gender pronouns. Mm. Like, and so some people say, oh, that's kind of a mean thing for you to say. But it, he's, he's not mentioned in any clinical textbooks that I'd ever read. Um, so he wasn't a well-known author in the field of clinical psychology or psychotherapy, um, but he suddenly became famous because he, he got involved in this controversy about gender pronouns. Um, he's, just, he's not mentioned, he's not cited in, in the literature but, yeah. of, the, of the field. Um, and he says stuff that seems to me to be, the, the, I guess the disagreement I have is that a lot of the advice he gives to me seems like quite bad psychological, not all of it. Um, some of it seems profoundly pseudoscientific to me, like the stuff about lobsters, for instance, mm-hmm. like, which just seems like if you were a first year psychology student and you wrote that in an essay, you, you'd kind of get a flea in your ear from your uh from your department for talking complete pseudoscientific nonsense like so i'm amazed that he i really i would never have guessed that was written by a psychology professor and the stuff that he says about depression and anxiety also to me seems to fly in the face of what the research actually shows and sometimes to to look like quite bad advice Um, apart from that i think he seems like a great guy <laughs> <laughs> do,
1: you know, <laughs> do you know what though? You need to position yourself against these claims he's making. Do you know do you know why? Though? I wrote an article. But... Oh, yeah, you have. But he he's basically what's the problem is um Jordan Peterson attracts these guys who are very just like, oh, my man, I'm alpha male guy. I've noticed, he's yeah. He's got the far right in his back on. I've noticed that. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> it's actually it's actually a problem because every guy I speak to yeah. now, they're like, me. they you of John Peterson? Yes, for mean, yeah, I don't, I don't like him. They're like, oh, he's class, bro. But he talks about religion a lot as well, where he says... None
0: that, of those guys have ever read his book, in my experience. Yeah. Like, his book, I, when I was reading his book, which I've read twice, because I get paid to do a professional review of it, I was reading it, I was thinking, I'm sure these guys can't have read this. like There's pages and pages and pages in it about the Old Testament, yeah. and like this weird Jungian kind of architecture, which is kind of interesting to me from a kind of nerdy... Point of view, I kind of think it seems really way out there, but it kind of reminds me of reading Jung when I was a teenager. Or whatever. I'm like, these guys that really love him, I'm sure they've not read all this religious stuff that he's got in the middle of his book.
1: But he claims, he claims you can't have a more, uh, you can't be morally like right unless you follow religion. Like he, he claims that. He can. He, it's like, how can you? Okay. He. Claim he
0: it? I don't know. I haven't read that. He does say things like that. He says things in his book that are difficult to critique because they're so bonkers that if you were to say, this is just bonkers, it sounds like you're being rude. Right. But also, it, it, it doesn't deserve even to be dignified with a kind of normal critical. Like at the beginning of his book, he says he had a dream where he was suspended from a huge cosmic crucifix in, the, in a massive cathedral. And that's where he got his inspiration. At the beginning of 12 rules, that's what he says um like he's jesus or something which seemed to me like a really weird way to open a self-help book um and then the the, a lot of the other stuff like all the lobsters and he also would say people say i'll just mention this right because he says a lot of things that are quite obscure but regarding what he says about gender throughout that whole book he says men are order and women are like, oh, the masculine is, is order and the feminine is chaos. And he says that repeatedly and he refers back to it quite a few times. And then sometimes he's kind of says he's not meaning to be negative about chaos, but repeatedly throughout the book, he makes it sound like he thinks order is good and chaos is bad and, and order is masculine and chaos is feminine, uh, like yin and yang or whatever. The subtitle of 12 rules is an antidote for chaos. I, for femininity which seems like a really strange way to phrase the subtitle of his book mm. if he doesn't intend it at some level to come across as if it's being a tad negative about femininity i think um, i think he knows
1: what he's doing i think like someone who's commenting they've read they've read his stuff and they think he's good like he's definitely says some decent stuff but he knows what he's doing he pits himself he's positioning he does say some interesting things yeah but he knows he's positioning himself in this very male, masculine, anti-anything, like the gender stuff, which is fair enough for Edwass's opinion. I'd but be
0: surprised if he didn't know that. Like
1: he knows it. I yeah.
0: think if I, like I'm an author, right? Like, I mean, he's sold like way, 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 far, infinitely more books than I have. But um, like, if I, if I saw somebody on Twitter saying Donald Robertson said this thing and, you know, that, that kind of gives me an excuse for slapping my girlfriend about or whatever, Right, um, I would just so diso- I would dissociate myself from that. Like, I'd go, whoa, 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 that's got nothing to do with what I said in my book. Like, if that's what you took from my book, then you've completely misinterpreted it. And so, people say he's not responsible for his audience, but he doesn't seem to do that much to kind of address the fact that there are lots of these alt kind of misogynistic, Islamophobic guys that see what he says is validating what they're saying and doing so at the very least I think he he has an obligation as an author to say I don't agree with the way that people are interpreting my my work he can't just do nothing about that uh, obviously
1: when he answers the question about it he will say like you know he's also got a lot of other different people and it's like okay but he doesn't seem to want like same as Trump they say like Trump you're like rallying he's like no I'm not but he knows he is he knows he's got that power behind him he knows he's got that big group of people behind he, him. This is means Scott.
0: If you if somebody went online tomorrow and said I was listening to Scott Fleer's webinar and he gave me a really good idea about how I should go out and do some racism tomorrow, <laughs> you you would probably be like, whoa, 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 buddy, that's not what I meant. Why like, you know? Don't be taking my words that way. It's not rocket science. Like if you do something in public and you people interpret it in a really unethical or. Uh, criminal or offensive way, you you kind of feel obliged to to say something about that and dissociate yourself from it, and then tell them to stop it. Like so, th- these guys have a duty, in my view, like to speak up more if they don't agree with the. Um, and uh, yeah, like I've met these guys because if you say anything like I don't agree with the science in his book, you'll get kind of you know like, the they'll descend on you. Why oh, like, they get quite. Is-
1: his audience is aggressive as I've seen like, like I can even, I could easily just be like yeah. oh, the guy and I agree with what he says. Cause it's all pro man and pro me. But then he like, some of the stuff is audience says on the other people is terrible. Like th- there was one question, right? Some, this trans woman was like asking him, okay, but if I ask you politely, would you just, can you refer to me as a he or she or whatever it was? Uh, would you do it? He's like, no. She was like, what's the point then? I'm just asking you nicely, and you, you just won't do it. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't do it. He's like, but I'm, you, you just said if you were to be nice, I would think of it. And then she says, okay, I'm very nice. Would you do it? Nah. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, How much? How bad is that for you? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's nothing for him to say, I agree with, I, it's fine, you can identify wherever you are. I think there is a li- line, though. There's a massive line that people are going like...
0: But he, um, he became famous because he started this controversy about this bill in Canada that he, if I remember rightly, said would mean that it would be a criminal offence. You could go to prison for not using the gender pronouns that students prefer, which is not true. Like, and so he, he misinterpreted uh, the, the implications of this bill. And that, but that was what catapulted him to fame in the first place. Yeah. Um, like I say, I'd never like heard of his work prior to that. Uh, it's mainly in personality theory, strangely, although he's a professor of clinical psychology. Like, it's this area that's not really directly related to, to clinical practice. But something else I'd say about that guy, um, that he was publicly sanctioned for, by his professional body um, for uh, a breach of ethics with one of his clients. And that's something I take very seriously because I've sat on ethics boards like, as a therapist before and if his professional body made that public they were obviously quite concerned about it so that's like first thing like for somebody who's writing about ethics and stuff like that. he's been sanctioned in public by his professional body and uh the other thing um is that people this wouldn't be obvious to people but some of the controversial things that he says um if you are treating clients you you have to be particularly cautious about things that you say in public, because they, they might have implications for the clients that you're working with. Um, so Jordan Peterson, one of the, th- the controversial things he said was there's no such thing as Islamophobia. Now, I don't know exactly what he meant by that. And clearly, a lot of the people that follow him kind of took it to justify Islamophobia. Um, he even posed next to a t-shirt, uh, a guy wearing a t-shirt that said it. But what I do know as a therapist is that he could easily have a client tomorrow who's a Muslim and has been victimized and bullied as a result of the religion. And then if they find out that he's involved in a controversy when he's saying stuff like that in public, it's going to impinge on the therapy. So it's for that reason, like therapists often think if you want to get into political controversies, you probably need to end your clinical practice. Like, but if you're seeing clients, you need to be a little bit more cautious and ta- at least tactful um, about the way that you express contentious religious or political views in, in public, because that could be quite potentially quite damaging to, to clients who have issues related to that. I, I read a lot of things he's saying, and I think that, that must seem strange to some of his clients uh, if they go online and, and see some of the things that he's been saying. Uh, been talking about in public.
1: Well, we know the extremes views are the ones that get views and clicks and followers and stuff these days. So, you know, yes, he, he, to...
0: he says weirdly, he says, This is the last thing I said, and then we'll get into our fight like At the beginning of 12 rules, he actually says that it's so also as a writer, it's really strange to read um like the, the introduction because he says he went on Quora, you know, that website where you answer questions, and he was like answering questions about psychology, and he got a bit. Um, you know, disappointed because he wasn't getting many upvotes. So he says he started to give responses in his words that were more tongue-in-cheek, right? And he says he noticed he was getting lots and lots of responses. And then a a publisher contacted him and said, could you get a book out about this really quickly because uh, we think it would sell really well. And so when I read that, I thought, does that mean when he says he wrote stuff that's tongue-in-cheek in in order to sort of be more sensational and get more attention online... Does that mean he doesn't entirely believe the stuff that he's saying? Mm. Or he does? Or It seemed like a strange thing to say right at the beginning of the book, though. I thought, I'm not sure, but it sounds like he's saying. He was just saying online. This is, we talked before about sophists, right? That's the definition of a sophist. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: So he's saying, I I changed and started saying more sensational stuff. My tongue-in-cheek, as he puts it. Like because it was getting me more upvotes online, and then I turned that into a book. Like that's I, I'm trying to be as faithful as possible to what he actually says at the beginning of the book. Well, so the, I don't his, want to put words in his mouth. That that's what he says.
1: His justification would be well, whilst doing, that, I got more attention and I help more people. That's what exactly what he would say back to that. And uh, you know, then you could argue, but then you're you're muddy in the waters with what is truth and what isn't, and you know, causing even more carnage in a way. You
0: can say, we can say, we can do better that that, Scott. We can say sensational things that get people's attention that we actually believe. That's more fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. We be celebrities <laughs> now, it's <laughs> more let us. Let's do it. Know, let's maybe, it doesn't game. work quite that well. Me and you, know, I'll be the other one side, you be the other. You start saying stuff, I'll start saying stuff back. Controversial like, stuff. Stoicism. Well, you know, you know Ryan Holiday. You know his first book was um, "Trust Me, I'm Lying," where he was basically creating false marketing campaigns against companies, and then I haven't read like, that oh, one actually.
0: Rich. Yeah, I should. Yes. I went. I to go and read it. Like, oh, uh,
1: one one story is like um, one company. Have you read so, it? I have read it. Did yeah. you read it? It's all well, cool. Is it was a good? Did you read it? Yes, it's quite well. Back in the day, I've read his other books. Yeah, it's good. It's like a marketing book, though. So like, it's kind of it's kind of strange. He came from that to be a stoic, but. Um, one company put a billboard up, right? Or they like vandalized it, put a billboard up, and then vandalized it, and then claimed to the newspapers that oh, right. was vandalized their own billboard. Oh, you think
0: we should do this kind of guerrilla marketing stuff for stoicism yeah. then? Yeah, basically. Right. Well, you should. Well, okay. I I'll get you a poster of me, and you can vandalize the beard or something like that. And then I'll, then I'll complain about it online and say this. Scott for you Scott used to be my friend, and now he's vandalizing my beard on on posters. Yeah. Like, I to see Scotland.
1: if I <laughs> I go to Scotland and I'll start it a bit. He's
0: been bad mouthing me. Um, <laughs> see if I can see if we can get some attention. Let's we'll start a fake argument.
1: Yeah, there's, there's team's doing this, Donald. There's campaign manager's doing all these things, and then you've got to fight fire with fire. Someone did. Someone did a comment earlier. true. They bought, your, they bought your book, so that's,
0: that's good. good. That'll be another. That's another twenty cents in the yes. in the coffee fund of like the royalties, like. <laughs> uh that's good like I mean I do I really like uh, I like selling books because <laughs> um I, I don't know if you're an author you don't write your book so nobody reads it you want as many people to read it as possible so I do always get really pleased when people uh, read it and if they're kind of learning about stoicism and stuff like I think that's awesome um because I know that they like they benefit from it and the audiobook I really like when people listen to the, the audiobook as well because I, I really wanted them to kind of be able to immerse themselves in it and uh, get the experience I'm going to be even more excited about the graphic novel because it's not entirely my work like there's other it's more like a team effort so I get more excited about that in a way because I think I, I really like the illustrator's artwork and I kind of want to show it to people and stuff like that so yeah. I feel like I'm, i can I can be more legitimately excited about that like, I'm not just kind of blowing my own trumpet I'm blowing yeah, that's that's Zez good. trumpet my, my illustrator's uh, bragging okay. on his behalf
1: I want to see a copy but yeah. Well. well we Reverend get into joining, this. Yeah, we've everyone joining. Where dawn has got a presentation, of course. So.
0: It's about death. Oh yeah. Pumped. That's the wrong thing. Oh
1: mm-hmm. well, look at you with your big stats on medium. <laughs> no, <laughs> celebrity man. I'm Donald, the... you are. Look
0: at all my stats. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, I'll shut up.
0: Live like Louise, stoicism, death, and the view from above is what I'm going to talk about. Like, you can chip in. Scott, I don't know if you... Scott, you haven't even noticed that there's no lalia.
1: I have noticed, but I'm thinking I uh-huh. thought you might pop in and I thought you were going to do a big entrance to the no, door. That's sacked her. you sacked oh, Yeah, got rid of her. Oh. Do you know what I
0: found out, Scott? I went oh. to floss my teeth the other day and The little plastic ring with the dental floss was like it was empty. The thing was still there, but there was no dental floss in it, right? Yeah, so I thought either it's a ghost or Lawyer's been stealing my dental floss, oh, so yeah. she's fire I fired her, she's out on that basis.
1: It's a habit, habito,
0: thief. I think she's busy or something, but she, um, it's a pity this actually, it'd be good to have her come back or whatever. But uh, I'll tell
1: her, she, tell her people I've really enjoyed her yeah. in the chats and stuff, so we'll definitely do more in the future anyway.
0: Cool, yeah, we'll get her to do more stuff. She has, she's doing a master's degree at the moment, actually, so she is incredibly like, busy. She works all day long, right? So we're going to talk about the view from above, and then I'm going to talk about the contemplation of death it's like everyone's favorite subject. For some reason, also at Christmas everyone wants to talk about the Stoic contemplation of death. I don't know why that is. Why? Like, but at Christmas time, everyone's like, "Oh, a Stoic contemplation of death." I think also like it in uh, what do you call it? Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge. It's kind of like uh, all about the contemplation of death. Uh, the ghost of Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge's own grave and stuff like that. So it's. Kind of like part of the the culture. Scrooge
1: Christmas. is my mother's favorite Christmas film. I've seen. I think I've seen every yeah. version of Scrooge.
0: Really? Um, Even yeah. the Muppet one.
1: Uh, I don't like. I don't like. I like the old one, the really old one. My mother used to say, "My mm-hmm. father was like Scrooge, and I shouldn't be like him." Really? So, yeah. So I've 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 got it ingrained in me not to be like Scrooge. So I've gone
0: the other way. I thought I was quite generous when I was a young guy, and now I never spend money on anything. Like as I got older, I think I'm turning more into Scrooge. Like my everyone says. I used to get annoyed when people said that Scottish people are stingy. And I was like, that's not true. I'm, I'm Scottish. And I'm, like, I'm not really stingy with money. And now as I got older, I'm like, I'm, I'm stingy and I'm proud of it, Scott. <laughs> I,
1: don't,
0: I don't mind. Like, uh, so, what's that? like? Um, I just wanted to, I don't know why I threw that up actually, just because, and it's a pity I'm not in it, right? I was looking for a picture of where I'm actually in it, but this is the empty studio in Toronto where I did the audiobook for how to think like a roman emperor Um, so i wanted to mention that because the last chapter of how to think like a roman emperor i wrote specifically so with the audiobook in mind so i put it in the first person and it's kind of like a guided meditation and i made it about the view from above and about the contemplation of death Um, and when i was writing it i thought this is a bit risky people might think this is too much I'm asking them to almost like really immerse themselves for like 15, 20 minutes. whatever, there's an extended meditation on death. It's like a guided meditation or whatever. I so thought people are going to be freaked out by that. But in all the reviews, people say that's their favorite chapter.
1: And the audiobook
0: sold way more copies than uh, we would have expected, like twice as many or something compared to how many it should have done because a, a lot of people, I think, like that, that chapter. So that's where I was when I was recording it in Toronto and and I guess what that tells me is normally I'd be a little bit hesitant to talk about the the contemplation of death because it seems a bit dark and a bit gothic and stuff but I've done so many talks and webinars over the years I know people love it Scott they love a bit of death I think they're all secretly like Cure fans or something like they're all a bit gothic like because people people actually quite like talking about it Um, So this is a little quote from Marcus Aurelius. He says, take a bird's eye view of the world. It's endless gatherings and endless ceremonies, Scott. Many journeys in both storm and calm and the transformations of things coming to be, existing and then ceasing to be. So just look at all the changes that go on around us and picture it as if from a bird's eye view, he says. And he goes on about this a lot. It's obviously a, a, a a passion of his, a favorite thing of his. He talks about it a lot. So I'm going to show you another couple of quotes just for, I, I'll tell you something weird that I discovered the other day. Like I literally just discovered that there's a set of stairs that, and there's a secret door in our apartment. And there's like stairs that go all the way up to the roof. And there's a view of the Acropolis from the roof in our apartment. I didn't even realize that. I've been here for about six months.
1: <laughs> like,
0: so I went up the other day and I was like, oh my God, we can have lunch on the roof with the Acropolis. So the view from above is kind of the view from the Acropolis. Marcus says, a fine reflection from Plato. One who would converse about human beings, that's you and me, Scott, should look on all things earthly as though from some point far above, above uh, upon herds, armies and agriculture, marriages and divorces, births and deaths, the clamour of courts, deserted wastes. That's Wales. Alien peoples <laughs> of every kind. <laughs> that's Scotland festivals lamentations and markets and he uses what agoras for the the market um which is what you see you look down on the agora like the athenian famous city center of athens uh, the marketplace of athens that's what you look down on from the acropolis the acropolis literally means the high up part of the city acro like acrobat and polis like metropolis acropolis high up of the city, that's what the Acropolis looked like in the oldy times when everything was made of wood. Beautiful, right? Um, Maybe. it would have been much better. There were big statues that got pulled down, and also Boris Johnson literally the other day just said, We're not going to return the stolen uh Parthenon marbles to, to Athens. I'm a bit biased, and that you know, I'll go talk about politics. I think I can get away with saying this little bit of politics. I think that the because I'm British, I just Polish. about. Like, Scottish, um, half Canadian. Like, I I think they should give back the Parthenon marbles. Like, Byron said that Lord Elgin stole them. Like, and, you know, like, who cares if in some technicality there was some kind of justification? Like, they belong to, they, they clearly belong to the Greeks. Uh, we don't need them in the British Museum. They don't belong to us. It's ridiculous. Like... <laughs> Greece is an impoverished country. The only thing it's got really going to support its economy is tourism. Give them the Parthenon marbles back. We stole the marbles, Scott.
1: That's like,
0: should... it's, it's, it's shocking. And that they pretend that, you know, anyway, that's a lot about politics. But there's not that many people that think the Parthenon marbles should stay in Britain, I don't, I don't think, anyway. I think oh, most God British no. people are like, hey, give them back if you want. Like they, I mean, it's pretty obvious who they belong to.
1: Yeah, and also, can't, like, pretend, can't
0: pretend we just found them.
1: Like how did yeah? Like you've got to think of how they got the hands on them. When you think of the British stole a lot of stuff from India as well, like trillions apparently of research, trillions in, in, in pounds worth of stuff. Like yeah. now we know it's wrong, but back in the day they probably thought it was fine. Now we know it's wrong. Maybe we should go. Do you know what? This probably is wrong. We should you know put probably. it back. <laughs> like
0: it's it's kind of obvious where it, it belongs, uh, and uh, it's not a small thing. It's like one of the great. Treasures of European civilization. Like it would be like as if somebody nicked the crown jewels from the Tower of London and said, Oh, they belong in Turkey or somewhere from now on. We've decided they're ours. Like, anyway, like a little bit of politics. I think I can get away with that bit of politics. So it's not that controversial. It's only Boris Johnson that disagrees with me. So the the view of the Agora is the view from the Acropolis, where the Parthenon marbles were originally located. And uh, Marcus also says, remember that your mind becomes invincible. That's strong talk, Marcus. When it withdraws into itself and rests content with itself, a mind free from violent passions is a mighty citadel. And the word he uses is Acropolis. For man has no stronghold more secure to which he can retreat to remain unassailable from that time onward. So not only does he say the view from above is like looking down at all the chaos of life and the interaction, the markets and the law courts. That's what you see in the agora. He says the agora. Um, But where you look down upon that from would be the Acropolis, which is um, what he name checks in this other quote. I didn't realize that until recently. and I looked more closely at the Greek versions of those. And I went, oh, he says agora and Acropolis. So I I think uh, Marcus probably had at some level in mind This idea of the view from above is the view looking down on the city centre from this, uh, what was once a hilltop fort and uh, became a temple in the centre of Athens. It's very famous.
1: Think think of how many conversations and dinners and stuff are happening right now, Donald, across Mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. That's a lot. Like, we're
0: just, you know, ants uh, in this vast network of uh, human beings but honestly I mean I'm being a lot bit glib about it I think it's incredibly important we've talked about this before what research shows is about anxiety and other strong emotions is that people narrow the scope of the thinking down we engage psychologists call it selective thinking or mental filters different names for it but basically our our viewpoint becomes very narrow and that's dangerous. It uh, means that our, our thinking becomes biased, our emotions get amplified and distorted. And when we're seeing things more clearly, we're usually viewing them from a broader perspective. And so the Stoics were right on the money and thinking we should train ourselves systematically. They thought we should do this every day. Marcus really says, every day, imagine that you're looking down on events from high above, so you're getting more of the, the bigger picture, you're expanding your horizons, expanding your perspectives. And there's other ways you can do this. Someone was talking to me earlier about kind of getting bad reviews and or criticism from, from people, I, th- I think. And I do, I've got an advantage. As a therapist, I specialised in treating anxiety disorder, which is... Um, tied up with something we call fear of negative evaluation. Like, so social anxiety is all about fear of negative evaluation. But as a therapist, that's the problem that I mainly worked with. And as a writer and also as a trainer, um, I've had reams of feedback. You know, if you're a writer, you get like thousands of Amazon reviews and whatnot. Um, and so you get loads of feedback from people that you've never met in your life before. Like have very strong opinions about things that you, you've said and done. And you kind of get used to it after a while. But one of the things that happens is that, of course, occasionally you'll get somebody that's really mean and they can't stand you and they give you a really scathing review. But if you've got lots of feedback for a course or a movie or a play or a book or something you put out in public, um, potentially, of course, you would look at the, the full range of feedback. You think if I ask enough people, Scott, if we, do you know that if we asked enough people, Scott, eventually we'd find somebody that would say they just don't like the look of your face. Eventually. I know that's hard to believe. Right. And if we, if we asked enough people, like, you know, we'd, we'd find people that think you're like the best thing since sliced bread, but it just depends who you ask. Right. Like if you ask enough people, you get a full range of opinions and stuff. And So again, in in daily life, we meet somebody and they don't get on with us or they say something really mean. I think like when you're reading reviews, it, it helps to make a conscious effort to expand your perspective and go, this is just one person's opinion out of billions of people who I could potentially have consulted about this. So this is like one bad review out of like a thousand reviews, right? So it's kind of interesting, but it's diluted when you take it alongside all the other stuff. And I'm emphasizing that because when people are depressed, they only remember the bad review, Mm -hmm. right? Or the bad interaction with somebody. And and so we, I'm emphasizing this to you because we have, the way our brains work, we have to make a conscious effort to avoid getting sucked into the selective thinking trap. Like we all do it. It's a vulnerability we have.
1: Mm. What about if you're if you're you only care about like one or two people's opinions? That's the only thing that matters to you in your life. Like, how do you pull out? The, how do you pull out of that trap?
0: I think you well, like you should question why those opinions are the only ones that matter. Um, you know, is there any reason to put so much importance on just one or two people's opinions? Mm. Like what about all the other billions of people in the world? Don't they have valid opinions as well? I think pulling out and viewing things from this kind of wider angle this broader perspective tends to be healthier maybe it's not always possible like you know maybe there would be reasons to put more emphasis on an individual's opinion but generally we can we're we're too quick to put someone on a pedestal or to give them that amount of influence over us i think it's because as children we're used to viewing our parents like when we're toddlers as being like these godlike authorities and that's how we soak up so much information so quickly from them. But then in adult life, I think we revert back to that. And, you know, we give certain individuals way too much influence over us, you know, when they might be quite biased or might be quite poor judges. Uh, and, you know, so it's better to kind of take a wider sample of opinions in many cases. So this is a view of the gods looking down from Mount Olympus. I think it's meant to be in a movie. Looks good. Looks good. So the view from above can take two forms. Either it's like the looking down from Olympus or like looking down from the Acropolis. It's just picturing things from high up. Or it can get more metaphysical, where we, we ask ourselves, what would it be like to imagine our current situation within the whole of space and time? And how, what a tiny, you're just oh, a speck oh, of dust. Oh. Scott, Scott your, your entire life, Scott, is like the blink of an eye in the history of the universe. Yes. Like it's nothing, Scott, like it's tiny, like a tiny little, tiny blip, right? But I think it's quite liberating to view things that way because it should remind us to, to think, well, we need to make the most of the opportunity that we have, like, and also kind of not blow events out of proportion to realize, you know, there's a lot more stuff that goes on to make up the story of the universe. And even in the space of your, your life, you know, if you're going through a difficult period, like on uh, a uh, 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 simple level, many people will tell you that they get through difficult situations by telling themselves like Abraham Lincoln said, this too shall pass. I think that the, to me, the deep, uh, one of the deep elements of this, the subtle kind of metaphysical part of this, there's a way of experiencing the presence of something unpleasant while simultaneously recognizing its potential absence. That sounds a bit abstract, right? So I imagine that I've got toothache, like, or say like I have toothache at the moment, but I also know that once I've gone to the dentist and dealt with it properly, eventually it will be resolved. My, And so if I focus on the fact that it's temporary and this too shall pass, at some level I'm kind of presenting to my mind its potential to be gone, its absence. Mm-hmm. And the presence and the absence together in my mind all moderate the amount of distress that it causes me, right? Whereas if you get too absorbed in an unpleasant feeling, um, you focus on it as if it's the be all and end all, you amplify the amount of distress that it's causing. So that I think there's a mindset that recognizes things
1: mm.
0: won't last forever, and that having that in mind helps to moderate the intensity of our emotions, and that's part of what's going on with the view from above. It's both spatial and chronological.
1: Well, also, do you know what we got in common right now, Donald? <clears throat> that we're moving through space at sixty-six thousand miles per hour on a piece of rock. Makes me
0: dizzy when you say that, Scott. Yeah,
1: right now we're going sixty-six thousand miles per hour. That's my I think. I'm mental. That is, but so we're just like ah, life is just me. Only me, man. We're going through the galaxy. at that speed. Oh my clue. god,
0: Scott. Did I, did I ever tell you about the theory of the eternal recurrence?
1: Nah, but you can tell me.
0: It's gonna blow your mind, Scott. All right. right. So Nietzsche talks about this, and Nietzsche's another one. Like, um, you know, I I, like, I used to love Nietzsche's writing, but he he's a weird guy because he kind of borrows loads of ideas from other people and then doesn't really. Say where he's getting them from. So he talks about this thing called the eternal recurrence. And he doesn't say where it came from. I think, I think I think he might even claim that he made it up. But he was a classical philologist. That was he was he wasn't a professor of philosophy. He was a professor of uh, Greek and Latin, and he um, he studied classics. And clearly, he took this idea and many of his other ideas from well-known ideas in classical literature. So the eternal recurrence, was an idea that the Stoics had, and I think before them the Pythagoreans, and it goes like this. So they think, look, the universe must have come from nothing, they think. Like, there must have been a time when nothing existed, and then the universe appeared. And they believed in determinism. So they think that everything in the universe is caused by what comes before it. It's like clockwork. Um, it's like a, cha- a causal chain reaction. Like one, th- one event causes the events that follow up. And the Stoics thought, well, one day the universe has to end eventually. Like there's an infinite amount of time. Like eventually the whole thing's got to collapse somehow and come to an end. But when it's all gone, it would return to nothing. And they said, like, the one thing we can be sure of is that nothing, absolute nothing and absolute nothing are identical. Like, absolute nothing that we came from and the absolute nothing that we return to are going to be identical. But the universe sprang forth from absolute nothing. So surely it would do that again. But if we believe in causal determinism, it would spring forth and follow exactly the same sequence of events and then return to absolute nothing. And then the same sequence of events would begin again. So you'd have this eternal cycle of exactly the same story being told, like the same events unfolding, because each time it returns to the same identical absolute state of nothingness. And then the whole causal sequence would emerge from that again. So what that would mean, Scott, is that they get to have their cake and eat it they get to say that the conversation that we're having at the moment is transient like it will be completely gone but it's going to happen again and again and again so it's both transient and eternal at the same time in a weird way and so the conversation we're having right now scott we've already had zillions of times before and we're going to continue to have zillions of times again in the future Exactly this conversation that we're having right now.
1: So basically, it's a matrix. It's like the
0: matrix or something. I'm gonna break. That's a really weird theory.
1: Well, do you know? Do you know? Have you seen the CIA released the files called the Gateway Experience? Have you heard of it? The CIA in the 80s were like, we need to fight the Russians, and we need to go Uh to the future. We can. We need to. We need to basically project our minds into time and space, and go to the future and see what happens. They released this document on how you would do that. It's honestly, it's about like connecting the left brain and the right brain, and apparently you're gonna to listen to these these tapes. I'm not gonna do it because like I, I'm scared I might end up in like a future round. Fu- might end
0: up traps in the future.
1: Yeah, me and you were just in an eternal fight to the death, and then oh my god, that's it. I can... man, that's Well, I mean, yeah, there's some crazy. The
0: stuff. The CIA have done some strange experiments. Yeah, like, for sure. sure. I'm kind of like surprised at some of the things that. Uh, well, you know they're allegedly. releasing
1: they're releasing documents about everything they know about UFOs in about six months because Trump Trump put the trigger. Really? In 18, eighteen yeah, he put a trigger in mid COVID. In eighteen months, you need to release everything about UFOs and aliens that you we know of. <laughs> it's gonna, and uh, I don't know what's gonna happen. It might be nothing, but if it I, is,
0: even if the aliens came, Scott, I'd be like meh. To yeah. be honest, I'm not. I'm not that bothered. I think they're already here, right? Actually. Like in, in Scot- Greece, Scotch. everywhere, Scottish people, right? And octopuses. <laughs> like, I'm convinced yeah. octopuses are aliens. Mm. Like, I'd be like, aliens, whatever. I'm, be, I'm more interested in reading books about Socrates, to be honest.
1: Alien, like, do you know what's in the aliens? Aliens, um, do, do you think like they would be amongst us? Or do you think that they would be seeing us as ants?
0: I feel like they'd, I, yeah, I think they would just, they think, oh, I can't be bothered with them. Like, you know, they'd take one look at us and run the other way, surely. They'd be like, they'd, I think they'd look at us and they'd be like, oh, this Socrates guy seems interesting, but all this crap on TV about the royal family is like, you know, I think we'll just leave these humans to it, come back self-struct. in another billion years, yeah,
1: I mean like, see tough.
0: if they've evolved any like, beyond all, the, you know, all their idle chatter. Um mm. Yeah, I think they'd look at us and think, geez, really? Like, I don't know. Do we want to know these people?
1: True. Why wouldn't why we know us? Where, where are we no. are. But you know what's interesting? If you, have you read Sapiens?
0: No, like, I haven't actually.
1: Like, like, there's a weird genetic leap in Homo Sapiens where they went from, you know, to, whoa, we got some brains and we can talk. Like, they, they, are, they do say there's like a massive genetic leap in humans' DNA. Like, what caused that then?
0: Magic Mushrooms. <laughs> yeah oh my yeah.
1: god i reckon that's a good theory should we put the should we put so out that's there?
0: a people some people claim that i don't I have no idea why like, it
1: could be drugs you know it could be the result of the forever i you know mean
0: they just we just started to think one day yeah, yeah. They, throughout, throughout history people have been kind of puzzled by it you know like the, the greeks thought the gods had given us this gift so Oh, I should say, actually, there's a movie coming out called On the Creation of Earthquakes, allegedly. It's in production at the moment, I think, with John Malkovich. Maybe they'll mention that, and he's going to play Seneca. And so On Earthquakes is a book by Seneca. And this is, he says this in it. Um, it's a lot about philosophy. He couldn't stop doing philosophy. He's maybe writing about earthquakes, but he put a bit of philosophy in. He says, forget all else, Lucilius, and concentrate your thoughts on this one thing, not to fear the name of death. Through long reflection, make death one of your close acquaintances so that if the situation arises, you're able even to go out and meet it. So Seneca's saying it's really important to get used to the idea of your own mortality so that it doesn't freak you out anymore. And this is such a common theme. I think, you know, again, it's evidence of how people find it fascinating. It's in the arts like throughout history and uh, religion, this idea of memento mori—we call it in Latin—it means remember that you must die, remember you will die. Contemplating our own mortality—it's such a recurring theme. You get it in the East and Buddhism and things like that as well. Um, but it's very central to uh, Socrates and to the Stoic tradition. And uh, There's lots of beautiful works of art that relate to it as well. But uh, right in the very, very kind of prehistory of Greek philosophy, I've mentioned before, we have this woman, I like to be a bit contrarian and say, you know, there aren't many female voices we're told in ancient philosophy, but I think they are, but they're just kind of hidden. Like uh, they speak through the men sometimes. So there are these priestesses called the Pythias in the Temple of Apollo, and they play a very important role in ancient Greek culture. And they gave these pronouncements, these sayings, that were often just two words, like little colons. We have 137 of them that survive today from uh, Stobaeus, if I remember rightly. And uh, the, so the Pythia, the priestess, um, provided these sayings, and philosophers would go away and think about them. So I think, in a sense, the Pythia kind of invented Greek philosophy. She was kind of in the background stirring it all up with these little wisdom sayings. Like, it does all go back to a woman. And one of them, like, luckily Lali is not around. Like, she'd get me into trouble for my, like, I do have a habit of mixing up modern and ancient Greek, right? But no no know. Like, so I think that's Throni Thneta. Phrone Thneta. Is my best uh, uh, ancient Greek pronunciation it's nowhere near as good as Lloy's. Bang on, bang on. Uh, so, yeah, it's accurate. It sounds maybe for it's probably means <laughs> something in Ruthen Welsh. Right. So the the Delphic Oracle said we should think things befitting a mortal. It means think mortal stuff in Greek, like literally think, uh, think thoughts that would be appropriate for a mortal. Like, and that's kind of cryptic, but it sounds like it means memento mori, remember you must die. Like, think about life in a way that takes account of your own mortality. You know, don't go around acting as if you're going to live forever. It sounds like that's probably what she meant. Seneca says that the most famous uh, pronouncement of the Pythia, know thyself, g- know thy Um He says that's what it means as well. He says, those whom you love and those whom you despise will both be made equal in the same ashes. This is the meaning of that command, know thyself, which is written on the shrine of the Pythian Oracle, the Temple of Delphi, just down the road from me. Um, So everyone's heard the phrase, know thyself. Seneca says it means know that you're mortal. Remember that you're going to die. Remember to know yourself is to know that your life is transient and to take account of that, not forget that, but to really seize the day and be grateful for the opportunities that you have. He goes on to say, what is man? Like, what is Scott f- Fleer? Nothing more than a Potter's vase, which could be yeah. shattered into pieces for the slightest knock. Like oh, he says you could be up in smoke at any moment. Like, you know? What you are
1: Donald. You're a bag of water that I could pop at any moment with the electric. <laughs> bag. You just got an electric battery in the top of it and the water balloon.
0: I'd explode. Yeah. Like, pff, like that? Like and uh, well during the pandemic, I think. A lot of people have been coming more to terms with their mortality and thinking about it. There are many, uh, in the Victorian era in particular, this theme of contemplating your own mortality was very popular. It's in a lot of funerary inscriptions and monuments and gravestones, like in Highgate Cemetery and stuff. You'll see it in churches and a lot of traditional books and uh, artwork. So you can see this is like, a, I think this is an engraving, an etching from a book. It says, remember to die, remember that you will die, memento mori. It is appointed for all men once to die, therefore think upon eternity. And as I am, so must you be, therefore prepare to follow me. It says, it's a little like, a cheery little poem. Kids like, it. nursery rhyme. So memento mori" means remember that you must die. Like, remember to die is a bit more of a literal translation of it, but the gist of it is remember that you're mortal. Um, there's a, a Latin phrase that's found on some tombs that says, quod tu es ego fui, quod ego sum tu eris. Like, that, like, that would be her area of expertise. Maybe I should have got her in today. It mean, and it, what it means, like these little sayings are kind of cool though, right? It, it says, it's usually, this will be inscribed on a tomb, like so there's a dead body in it, or sometimes next to a depiction of a, a skull or a skeleton. Right, so it's referring to the corpse or the skeleton. And it says, Scott, what you are, I once was. What I am, you will become. No. It's like a famous cute little description. I used to be alive like you, but now I'm just a pile of bones. And so will you be too one day. Like yeah, I think, I do That's think why like, I'm thinking very of, gothic. I'm thinking of hanging about. Yeah, well that's fine. Right. You know, everyday Scott when I'm like in the mirror, I've got my, my beard's gone all white mm. like I think about my mortality. And then there's this thing I like to call the stoic kiss of death, just because it sounds a little bit more heavy heavy metal or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so okay. Epictetus refers to this. He, this is the most controversial thing he says. He says, if you kiss your own child, like if surely when, right? Like, if you kiss your own child or your brother, like how often do you kiss your brother, or like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or friend? Like not, well, the Romans used to kiss uh, male friends on the lips. Like that was part of the culture, which is probably a bad idea during the Antonine Plague. <laughs> <laughs> like. I wonder,
1: wonder
0: why. Yeah. yeah, I can't imagine why. Yeah. So if you kiss your own child or your brother or friend, never give full license to the appearance, the impression, and allow not your pleasure to go as far as it chooses but check it and curb it as those who stand behind men in their triumphs and remind them that they are mortal. So Epictetus here is referring to something that classicists are intrigued by. There's a number of references to this. So when a Roman general or the emperor, who was a general, um, won a victory, they would go back to Rome and they would have a big Celebration. They'd gain titles and stuff. They'd parade through the streets with captured slaves and treasure. Um, The emperors of the generals would stand in a chariot. Their face would be smeared with red dye. Uh, They'd wear purple regal robes. Um, So they were dressed kind of to look like the god Jupiter. And there would be a slave standing behind them, holding a laurel crown above their head. And the slave would whisper in their ear, Memento mora like, or remember that you must die, like, was apparently what the slave would be whispering while everyone's like, yeah, you're so awesome, you're like a god, like, you know, you defeated the Germans or whatever, or the Parthians or whoever it was at the time. Like, there was a guy that stood behind him and went, remember, you must die, like, <laughs> to stop him getting too big of an ego, right? And uh, that's what Epictetus is referring to here. Like... Uh, Curb is those who stand behind the men in their triumphs and remind them that they are mortal. Do you also remind, remind yourself in like manner that he whom you love is mortal? So Epictetus is saying, also not only remind yourself that you are mortal, but remind them, yourself that your loved ones are mortal as well. And he goes on to say that he thinks that this is a key to loving people rationally. Because like, otherwise we take them for granted, he thinks. Or we get too attached to them or dependent on them or whatever. And he thinks there needs to be a certain amount of non-attachment. We need to accept that other people aren't entirely under our control. Like we need to view them as, he says, on loan to us from the universe so that we're grateful for the presence of other people um, rather than kind of being too demanding or taking them too much for granted. Yeah. So Epictetus, um, this is the most famous quote about stoicism. And most people don't realize it. Like, I like to show people things they've never seen before. Like, so like most people who read about stoicism will hear this quote over and over. It's not things themselves that disturb us, but rather our judgments about those things. Like, it's a cliche. It's a very famous quote. But most people don't know what he says in the next sentence. Which he, so he gives an example. He says, for example, death is nothing catastrophic or else Socrates, too, would have thought so. Rather, it is the judgment that death is catastrophic that is the catastrophic thing. And this actually is a very cliche, very like stoic thing, but most people don't go on to read the rest of the quote. So where he mentions Socrates and mentions the contemplation of death, it's the first thing, the most important thing that he thinks we need to apply this to. So he says, death in itself is neither good nor bad. Why? What matters is the value judgments that we impose on it. Like, you know, and he says Socrates um, thought his time was up, like he he would much rather uh, stand uh, in accord with his moral principles. He thought that was more important, um, even if he risked his life in doing so. And in a sense, he was right, because he changed Socrates more than just about anyone else, except maybe Jesus Christ or somebody like that. You know, Socrates changed the face of Western civilization, to borrow a phrase, from Nietzsche, actually, Scott Socrates pressed his hand upon aeons as though upon wax, like he moulded the history of Western civilization because he wasn't frightened of dying, like mm. and he made this big stand like to defend philosophy, and the, the Athenians executed him, and then they felt really bad about it afterwards. In the the prison. Um, the Athenians dug it up, and they found something really strange there. Not a lot of people know this, like because I'm in Athens, I've got the insider gen, the insider info, like from the School of Archaeology. Like they, you can see in the Museum of the Ancient Agora, um, they found something surprising in the prison where Socrates was executed. They found a little tiny statuette of Socrates, which would be the sort that they would normally have in a shrine. Um, so it's almost like the Athenians felt bad about the fact that they killed Socrates and then they, they had like a little shrine uh, honoring him in the place where he was executed, like maybe mm-hmm. a generation or, or so later. Um, but again, they, they say, look, well, like Socrates had what they call a, um, a noble death, a good death. That's where our word euthanasia comes from. Like it actually is just the Greek word for noble death. And the most famous example of a noble or a good death in Greece and Rome was Socrates. That's who they'd refer to. So they say, he died. He went out He went. He went out in a blaze of glory, Scott. Like, you know, standing up for the things that he believed in. Like, and he wasn't scared. Like, and he'd had a good innings, Scott. He was 71, which is pretty old like okay, for yeah. back in the day. Um, Xenophon actually implies that part of his reasoning was that if he had to pay a huge fine, which was the other option, he wouldn't have been able to afford it and he might have had to stay in prison, like in debtor's jail to pay off the fine. And that because he was 71 in an ancient Athenian prison, his life would have sucked anyway. So Xenophon was like, well, he was kind of like thinking, yeah, that would be so miserable. He's he's better off just taking the hit, like, you know, and uh, making this one last big stand and going out in the, the proverbial blaze of glory. But we're still talking about him
1: today. Exactly, exactly. That's good. Well, Donald, what about, so, should we, like, five minutes?
0: Are we going to wrap up, like,
1: let's see, yeah. well, we've got, like... How many slides we got?
0: Only a few, like, right? uh, we don't, it doesn't need to take long, we'll go through those. on, oh, here he is. Yeah.
1: Is
0: that Socrates, his famous little snubby, stubby nose? Like, so there's an obscure dialogue called the Axiochus. it's a pseudo-Platonic dialogue, not a lot of people know about it, but it's the one where they talk about death. We don't know who wrote it, it wasn't Plato, like, it was probably one of his students. it's about socrates and he talks about death and he's talking to one of his friends a guy called axiochus who's really scared of dying and socrates says but death does not exist either for the living or the dead and what he means is the dead aren't conscious anymore like and the living haven't experienced it yet like so nobody ever actually experiences what it's like to be dead Mm. and he says to axiochus this really cool phrase he says vain then is the sorrow in Axiocos, grieving for Axiochus. That's a really cool way to put it. So this guy is really anxious about dying. Socrates says, like, it doesn't make any sense for Axiochus to grieve for Why? Like, because you're not dead yet. And when you are dead, you won't be conscious of it. Like, <laughs> true. So what, what sense does it make even getting stressed about this? Seneca says death is a release from all our suffering and a boundary beyond which our ills cannot pass. And then there's a cool little argument in this dialogue. So Socrates says, well, look, death is neither good nor bad. It's a state of non-existence. right? you don't experience good or bad in it. Axiochus pushes back against it, though. He says, yeah, it might not be good or bad. It might be unconsciousness. But I'll be deprived of all of the opportunity to experience good things in life. And Socrates, because he's relentless, says yes. But you won't be aware of the fact that you're deprived of all of the good things in life, which is a really neat little bit of dialectic. Like, because it seems like Axiocles is an objection and then Socrates says, yeah, but like maybe your objection doesn't really work. So I don't know, again, I don't expect everyone to agree with that argument uh, necessarily, but you know, many of the things you find in Socrates, you go, I'm not sure if I agree with that or not, but it's kind of a cool argument. And sometimes they stick with you and they get you thinking about things. Talking about something really important. This reminds me of a famous anecdote about Diogenes, the cynic. So I want to tell you, because he's everyone's favorite Greek philosopher, actually. He's the kind of, uh, I saw there's a meme that rates philosophers in terms of how punk they are, and Diogenes always comes up as the most punk rock Greek philosopher. So supposedly, Diogenes was dying, and his followers said, Yeah, but what are we going to do with your body? Uh, Because you don't have any money. Like you live like a beggar and funeral ceremonies were really important in Greek culture. They thought um, it was terribly sacrilegious uh, not to dispose of a body properly. And Dogeny said, well, I want you just to grab my ankles and drag me outside the city walls and dump me and the the rubbish and uh, you just leave me there. And they thought that's shocking. Like, so they said, but master, we can't do that because then wild animals will come and they'll eat your body. And that would be like a shocking sacrilegious thing. And, and says, good point, buddy. He says, you know, the, he always had a wooden staff. He said, you know the staff I carry about? What you should do is just lie that down beside me. Then when the wild animals come to eat my body, I'll pick up the staff and just go, knock them on the head with it. Like, and I'll they'll keep, they'll keep them away. How about that? And his followers are like, yeah, but like, master, like, you won't be able to do that. Cause like, you know, like you'll be dead and you won't be like conscious and stuff. And Dodgeny said, exactly, you bunch of Muppets. Like, so, if I won't be conscious, like, I'm not going to care, really, if I'm eating by dead, like, wild animals, will like, voila. Like, so this was just his kind of quaint way of saying, what difference does it make to me? Mm. Like, you know, I'm going to be completely oblivious, so I wish I care whether I'm eating by dead animals or not. Um, there's another argument that's common in ancient philosophy that says, why should you worry about non-existence after death? You've already been dead for zillions of years before you were born. You'll return to the same state of non-existence that you came from. And I want to quote this because this is also found in t- ancient tombstones, and it's really cool. It's non-fui-fui, non-sum, non curo. Non non it's like a little poem almost. It says, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. And that sums up this argument. Um, it says, like, for a huge expanse of time, I didn't exist. Then I did exist for a while. And now I've returned to complete non-existence. And, but I'm oblivious, so it doesn't make any difference to me. But I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. Is a common thing it seems to have engraved on tombstones in the ancient world. Shall we wrap up there, Scott, or do we have time for...
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I've got two mins I have to join on this other thing. but
0: No, let's wrap up. I'll just well, I'll finish with the last slide. Like I just wanted to say, Seneca, one my, this is, I'll finish with this because it's my favourite quote. People ask me, what's your favourite Stoic quote? And I say, it's this controversial one from Seneca, where he says, to learn how to die is to unlearn how to be a slave. And what he means by that is that to contemplate and come to terms with your own mortality overcome your fear of death liberates you and allows you to be free from many other attachments and anxieties in life. So they think that to overcome your fear of death, come to terms with your own mortality, is what existentially deep down will really kind of set you free. To learn how to die, he says, is to unlearn how to be a slave. And with that, Scott, I conclude
1: We conclude. Donald, you've done a fantastic six weeks with us. I'm sure we'll be seeing you again very soon. But I have asked people for questions, but it seems people have just been taking in what you've been saying. So just been chilling. Yeah, chilling. Happy days. Well, I'll be in touch to do another Q&A. Is that linked to Udunamia? Is that linked to Udunamia?
0: Does it link to... Yeah, Udunamea. Um, is really the goal of life in stoicism and other philosophy it's almost like, that word almost means something a bit like Nirvana, it's a state of complete flourishing, it's the peak of human achievement and so Eudaimonia uh, the Stoics think you, you have to uh, come to terms with your own mortality in order to to truly um, experience fulfilment in Eudaimonia
1: Damn right well, thank you very much Donald I'll be in touch to do another Q&A but I appreciate that everybody's left there
0: Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure as always, my friend. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.